0: Well, we are ready to get started this morning. Um, Again, if you're visiting with us, we are in a sermon series right now. This is week four in the gospel story. Uh, We are on a journey through the Bible. Um, This is not a verse-by-verse journey through the Bible, though we do that often here. Um, What we're looking at together is we're walking through the Bible. This is how we typically think of the Bible. It's this collection of a bunch of books. But what we're doing is we're taking a journey through the big story of the Bible, the gospel story. And what we're seeing is that there's this this arch to the story that, that God is telling through the Bible. Beginning with week one, we looked at creation. And we came back last week, Genesis chapter 3 through 11, we looked at the fall and how through the sin of man, everything began to unravel and become distorted, including our role as image bearers, um, God's design for us to walk in and, 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 and thrive in community, and also our mission to multiply and build a kingdom for his name's sake, that all began to unravel. We saw how that didn't just stop in Genesis 3, that by the time we get to Genesis 6, that that distortion had been passed on from generation to generation. And God said, as he looked down on the earth, that that the intentions of the heart of men were evil all the time. And so we have the flood, and an entire uh, generation is wiped off of The face of the earth and we with hope thought well maybe this will fix things and we found out surely that it didn't that by the time we get to Genesis 11 man has multiplied again and is continuing uh, this effort to build a kingdom for himself to make a great name for himself that led us to the story of the tower of Babel where God dispersed the nations through confusing their language so chapter 11 in Genesis kind of left us hanging for some hope here. Things were not looking good uh, as sin began to uh, weave its way into who we are, the fabric of who we are, and distort all of that God has designed to be good. And so this week we're going to look now at the overview of the Old Testament and the promise of God to restore all things. Now, we're going to take a journey from, uh, from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament today. Um, But we're not going to look at every book and every verse, so uh, hold tight. What I do uh, want to do with you is to go back to Luke 24, where we started the series three Sundays ago. In Luke 24, we find a resurrection scene in the story where Jesus has, has come to join his disciples there in the upper room, and he says something profound that sets the the course of this sermon series, but more importantly, shows us how to read the Bible. So there in Luke 24, we'll just read 44 and 45. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled and then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures now just a few reminders at this point in human history we didn't have the new testament because it was happening in real time but we had the old testament and the old testament was organized into three categories of writings first was the law the first five books of the old testament Then you had what was referred to as the prophets. This included the bulk of of the rest of the narrative and the major prophets and the minor prophets, all grouped into one big bundle called the prophets. But then you had this extra section that included the wisdom literature and the poetic literature, like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, the Psalms. And so what Jesus is doing, now we don't know specifically which Bible verses he quoted to them, but what he did essentially is he walked through the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he showed his followers how they were all ultimately about him, and that everything written about him in the law, the prophets, and the writings had to be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand what? The story, the scriptures, the Bible. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through a few verses from the law, the prophets, and the writings, and look at how the Old Testament ultimately is pointing us towards Jesus himself. Now, I could have gone to hundreds of thousands of different Bible verses to accomplish what we're going today. So I just selected a few uh, to help us see the big picture of what God is doing in the Old Testament. So to get us started, before we read from Genesis chapter 12. Let's remind ourselves where we left off. Genesis 11 is the dispersal of the nations. Man has right gathered together to build this tower in the city of Babel to make a great name for himself and God disperses the nations. That helps us to understand then the promise he's about to make in the very next verse. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, after the nations have been dispersed, we meet Abram who will later call Abraham. Verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed Now there's a lot packed into what we just read God comes to Abraham and essentially gives him a command to go to leave his everything he's comfortable and familiar with and to follow the land that God will show him so it's this idea that God's saying I'm going to lead you I'm not going to tell you up front where we're going I just need you to trust me come with me that was the command that was followed by a promise now to understand the full weight and significance of the promise we have to understand that at this point in time Abram and his wife Sarah had no kids because she was barren okay and they they weren't young kids anymore probably had gotten to that point in life where they thought you know what probably not going to happen for us Right? We're not going to be parents. We'll just live out our lot in life and whatever God has for us. And God comes and makes this promise. Hey, whoa, 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 tap the brakes, Abram. I'm not done yet. You're going to have kids. Matter of fact, your kids are going to have kids and their kids are going to have kids until your family becomes a great nation. But that's not the fullness of the promise. Not only is your family going to become this great nation, I'm actually going to bless all other nations through them. And so God makes this promise, right? Right after he disperses the nations, what God is saying is, listen, Abraham, I'm actually going to bless all the nations on earth through you. Essentially what God is saying to us in the bigger story is, I'm going to restore everything that has been lost. I'm going to rescue you. Not only you, I'm going to rescue the nations through you. Now this profound and epic promise that God makes in Genesis 12 carries out now, really through the the rest of your Bible, this promise stitches together every small story and helps us understand how every small story in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. This promise gets reiterated over and over again, even in the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis 26.4, God comes to to Abraham and says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that reiteration of the same promise. Abraham, come outside with me. Look up at the sky. You see all the stars? It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, count those stars for me. I can't count those stars, God. Yeah, that's right. And you won't be able to count your descendants either. That's the kind of, that's the size of the nation that I'm going to build through you. Then in another example in Genesis 28 verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You hear that reiteration of the promise? Now, This wasn't just a one-off promise that God was making with one man, was it? Right? If God made good on this promise, it was not only going to impact Abraham's life and his kid's life and his grandkids' life, but it was going to impact every nation on earth, every generation that ever lived, including us. So if God's going to make good on this promise, it has something to do with us sitting here today, that he would bless the nations and the future generations and future families through Abraham's lineage. Now this essentially sets the course for the Old Testament. And so when we read through the Old Testament, these smaller stories about... Guys like David, and we think, okay, finally, the, we're going to get it right now. We've got a good leader, right? A noble leader, a, a valiant warrior who's going to lead the nation of Israel in humility and, and, and strength and honor. And then what happens? He sees a woman without clothes on, on a rooftop, and says, I've got to have her. He sleeps with her. It's her pregnant. And then to cover it all up, he murders her husband. And we're like, ha, oh. Well, maybe Solomon will get it, right? Solomon's going to build the temple. He's going to bring the nation together to worship God in one place and then not too long after the temple is built, the nation divides into two and once again, we're left thinking, how is this ever going to go right? Story after story. God calls Jonah. He runs in fear. Example after example, reminding us what? Something's not right here with the story. Now, Before we spend too much time picking on the Old Testament characters, let's remind ourselves that our lives serve as the same example, right? When you look at the stories of our lives, we're all reminded what? Something's not right here. All too often, we're like the Apostle Paul as he describes himself in Romans 7, doing the things we know we shouldn't do and not doing the things we know we should. And every time that happens, it reminds us what? Something's not right here as the impact of the fall continues forward. Now, we're going to go to the prophets next. And we could go to a number of the prophets to look at these amazing prophetic, um, looking forward promises that were made through the prophets describing this one who is to come and to rescue us. I think it's interesting in Luke 4, Um, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's in Nazareth, his hometown, and he unrolls a scroll to to read it in the synagogue, and and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he he reads about how he has been sent from God to open the eyes of the blind and to heal those who have been uh, broken and and, and, and wounded, and then he rolls the scroll back up and he says to the crowd, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. It's about me. Now, they don't respond very well in that moment. We know that that when Jesus read Isaiah, he, he saw what God had called him to do. Let's go to the prophet Isaiah, shall we? How about Isaiah 53? You see, for the nation of Israel, every time they heard this promise from God reiterated that God would rescue them, they began to long for and look for a rescuer, that God would one day send them a rescuer. This is where the idea of the Messiah comes from. That's the idea that God would send a chosen one, a rescuer that they called the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is a vivid description of the one who is to come, the Messiah. Listen to this description in Isaiah 53. We'll start in verse two. For he grew up before him Like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, for the nation of Israel, probably wasn't a vivid description of what they had been imagining for their Messiah to be like. No majesty, nothing to draw us to him. Matter of fact, listen to what was described here that God's promise to save us and rescue us would actually require horrific sacrifice. Not just a a valiant warrior to come and conquer in nobility and popularity, but horrific sacrifice would be the way that he would rescue us from our sin. Our rescuer would be misunderstood, rejected, and despised. Our rescuer would bear our grief and carry our sorrows. Our rescuer would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Our rescuer would be chastised in order to bring us peace and our rescuer would be wounded in order that we might be healed. Now, that's not a heroic description, in human terms, but it's a vivid depiction of what Jesus would come to do, isn't it? Now think about this is happening, this is being written six, seven hundred years before Jesus comes to earth. And his sacrificial death is being described to us with vivid imagery of what the rescue would look like. Now, I want you to think about what you know about the cross. Easter is right around the corner in a couple of weeks we'll be um, gathering together for our Good Friday service to observe um, the sacrifice and the death of Jesus on our behalf before celebrating his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Think about what you know about the brutality and, and, and the, the horrific events of that 24-hour period for Jesus, starting the night before, after breaking bread and Passing the cup there with his disciples shortly after that, he was betrayed by Judas and then abandoned by the rest of his followers. He was arrested, falsely accused, taken to two um, illegal mock-up trials in the middle of the night before being taken to Pilate, where he was ultimately sentenced to be brutally tortured, stripped of his outer garments, his nobility. They spat in his face. They punched him. They made fun of him. They mocked him. They said, You're the son of God, save yourself, come off the cross. They put a sign above his head mocking him as the king of the Jews. And then they did what? They pierced him. They nailed him to the cross where he would die for our sins. There under the cross on the ground as Jesus was drawing near to his last breath, they took his garments and they cast lots. They rolled dice to see who would get to take what home as a souvenir remember the words of Jesus he didn't say a whole lot from the cross did he remember what he said my God my God why have you forsaken me now has that verse ever struck you as kind of strange what was going on in that moment Was Jesus in that moment acknowledging that God the Father had abandoned him and forsaken him? Is he he wanting to call the whole thing off? Like, hey, this isn't what I had in mind. I didn't know it was going to come to this. God, where, where are you? What was he doing there on the cross as he said those words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may not know this, but Jesus was actually quoting a psalm. Psalm 22. From among the writings. Psalm 22, what Jesus was actually doing is he was uttering the words of a song. He was singing in his agony and his grief. Let's look at Psalm 22 together. Psalm 22, keep in mind, this was written by David, King David, in a time of anguish, a time of feeling like God had left him, a time that was dark, that was full of despair, King David writes these words, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? These are the words on Jesus' lips as he's there on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest in this moment of anguish King David himself was feeling abandoned and forsaken by God like his prayers were hitting the ceiling and just falling to the ground like the God who he once had entrusted in and who had had been so intimately involved and in his life now seemed very far from him have you been there you've been in that moment of despair that moment where you felt like God has, has abandoned me he can't even hear my prayers I feel like everything I'm praying is just hitting the ceiling and Fallen back to the ground. Well, as, as King David continued to pour out his heart in this song, look at what he says next. Yet, that's a big word. So even though I feel this way, even though everything is, feels like despair and hopelessness, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They tr- trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I love this example from David. As he starts with honesty about the desperation of a situation, God, I'm, I, my, my life is steeped with doubt right now. I feel desperate and hopeless, and yet, God, you're still worthy. You're still holy. I choose not to believe my emotions right now. I choose to believe what is true. You are holy. You are set apart. You are worthy of worship. You're worthy to be trusted. Guess what? That's the song Jesus was singing on the cross. Right now, everything about this moment feels dark and hopeless. I feel so far from you right now, Father, yet you're still holy you're still enthroned, you're still worthy of worship, you're still worthy to be trusted. And that's the song Jesus was singing at the cross. Now, continue reading with me. Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see those parallels? Jesus was being despised in that moment. Now think about this. David wrote this over a thousand years before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, here's one way to think about it. I don't know if you've ever looked through a pair of binoculars that were out of focus. You look through a pair of binoculars and it's all fuzzy and gray, but you can see objects out there. And the more you adjust the focus, the more you're able to tell what it actually is that's out there, right? And it, and it seems like it's getting closer and it's, you're able to see it with more detail and it's more vivid. Think about the promise of God that way. As he's making this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, way back, Thousands of years before the cross, what Abraham was seeing was a promise from God, yet it wasn't clear in focus. He couldn't see the hands of Jesus being pierced. He couldn't fully see the cross. All he knew is that hope is that way. God's made a promise and he's gonna rescue us and and I, I can't see it in full detail, but it's that way. And through every writing of the Old Testament, the closer we get to the New Testament, that image of the cross becomes more vivid and in more detail and more accurate. And here in Psalm 22, We're seeing with accurate detail what the rescue would look like. Verse 14, Psalm 22, verse 14. Listen to this I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Listen to this. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see how that image of the cross is becoming more and more in focus and and David sees it more clearly than Abraham saw it, right? It's not that that David could fully see Jesus being nailed to the cross. And keep in mind, David was never nailed to the cross. And so he's seeing these pierced hands and these pierced feet and he's seeing people mocking and he's, he's hearing them and he's watching them cast lots for the garments of the rescuer. Now, this psalm doesn't end before it gives us a reminder of the promise. Look at verse 27 with me. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Does that sound familiar? Through David, in this moment, a vivid depiction of the rescue that is to come, God reminds us that this is the fulfillment of what he said to Abraham. Through you, I will bless the nations. Through you, I will heal the nations. There's this beautiful imagery in the book of Revelation at the end of the story where God describes the gathering back of the nations. Remember when we left off in Genesis 11? The nations are scattered in confusion. And now in Revelation, what does God do? He gathers the nations back to himself. This this beautiful, vivid imagery, and it's described this way, that as the nations gather together to worship God, it's it's like the sound of many rushing waters. It's like Niagara Falls. It's so loud you can feel the rumbling of the nations gathering together to worship God at the end of the story. And read one last verse with us with you today. On the first week of the sermon series we looked at one verse from the book of Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 where the apostle Paul writes something deep and profound about the Bible and about the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Would you look at this with me one more time? Paul begins in verse 8 by saying, "And the scripture, right? We know what he's talking about. The scripture foreseeing so here's what paul is saying the scripture as god was inspiring these writers to write these things down the one who was actually authoring the words of the bible was foreseeing something what was he foreseeing the scripture foreseeing that god would justify the gentiles that again is a reference to all of their nations he would justify the gentiles by what faith that's the gospel and look at what he says that he preached the gospel before him to who? Abraham. When did God preach the gospel to Abraham? When he said, In you shall all the nations be what? Blessed. You see that connection? That promise stitching together every small story of the Bible to write one beautiful, epic redemption story. Now, as you journey through the Old Testament, All the stories aren't exciting. There's a lot of despair and anguish and and heartache and failure in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, there there are no heroes in the Old Testament. Go, Go study the Old Testament. These men and women, you think, oh, here's a hero. Oh, wait a second. No, he has an affair and kills somebody. Oh, this person, surely they'll be a hero. Nope, he's running in fear. There are no heroes in the Old Testament. The Old Testament leaves us longing for a hero, somebody to come and actually fulfill what has been promised. God's stitching together every little story to tell one bigger story, and guess what? Your life is one of those little stories, too just like the people of the Old Testament clung to this promise that God's not done yet. He's not done writing our story. You've gotta hear this today. God is not done writing your story. And while there is evidence in each of our lives that things are, not, are messed up and not right here and sin is running rampant, right? Each of our stories is a beautiful redemption story that God desires to write. Listen to me, church. God is not done with your story. He who began the good work in you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to be faithful to finish it. You may be here today, and you're thinking, you know what? I'm kind of in despair right now. I just prayed that prayer last night. God, where are you? Why are you far from me? Maybe you're wrestling with depression or anxiety or hopelessness or grief or some kind of a sorrow right now. And maybe you feel like the story has ended. Right, like you've come to the last sentence, and this is just where it ends. This is my lot in life. The question today is, are you going to trust what you feel? Or are you, like David, and more importantly, like Jesus, going to say, this is how I feel, God, but this is what I believe. And I'm going to stand on what I believe. You're still on your throne. You're still holy and set apart. You're still worthy to be worshipped. You're still worthy to be trusted. God, I believe you're not done writing my story. I want to land here today and i want to land with a couple of questions i don't know everybody in the room and i don't know how many of you in this room have truly trusted in jesus by faith as your savior and so here's what i want to ask you have you come to that place in your life journey where you have trusted in jesus and him alone for your salvation for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternity with god Now, I'm not asking if your mom or dad is trusted in Jesus, or your grandma, or if I have trusted in Jesus. I'm asking, have you made that decision to trust in Jesus? If you're here today and you have not taken that step of faith, I I want you to know something. We actually prayed for you this morning. At 7 a.m., gathered in this room with the tech team, with the worship team, several staff members, we began praying for our services today, and specifically, prayed for those who would come to our church today who don't know Christ and if that's you I'm going to ask you to do something courageous in a minute when we stand and sing would you grab one of our prayer partners would you let them tell you more about becoming a Christian and pray with you and maybe there's something going on in your life and you're just feeling the weight of it right now and you need somebody to pray over a situation and we want you to, to know that our prayer partners are available for you as well Our prayer and counseling rooms are gonna be open if you just wanna slip away and and talk with somebody or just spend some time praying alone, you can do that. Maybe you just wanna stand and worship God right now, whether you feel like it or not, you're just gonna choose to do that. Um, You can do that as well. And so I'm gonna pray for us, and as I pray, our worship team is gonna come forward. Our prayer partners are gonna make their way to their place in the room, and then we're gonna respond, okay? Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for this very vivid and helpful (laughs) reminder today that, God, you truly are still on your throne and that the human story is not ultimately left to chance, but you, Father, are sovereign over the human story, and, God, you are writing an epic redemption story, and, God, you're inviting each one of us, Father, just to throw our lives into that story to become a part of that redemption story. God, for anybody here who doesn't know you, who has not surrendered the, 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 the pen of their life, the story of their life to you, I pray today would be the day that they would trust in Jesus and him alone. God, for those of us who know you, God, I pray, Now we could quit living life like, like today is the last chapter, but we could live in expectation that you're not done writing our story, God, That even in moments of despair and heartache, Father, we can stand with David and more importantly with Jesus and we can say, God, you're still worthy whether I feel it or not. You're still on your throne. You're still worthy to be trusted and praised. So Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to move through this room. To stir in our hearts now. Father, we could respond. Pray all this in the name of Jesus.